Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Chris Turner is a stand-up comedian and freestyle rapper from England who made his debut as a solo artist at the Edinburgh Fringe with 2014's Pretty Fly, which won the Amuse Moose People's Choice Award. Turner made his New York City debut five years later with 2019's White Boy. Later that year, he uploaded a six-minute clip of himself improvising a live rap based on audience suggestions at the Comedy and Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, California. That video, White Boy Drops Unbelievable Freestyle Rap, has earned him almost 18 million views since. Now based in New York City, he's a regular at the Comedy Cellar. In 2021, he performed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and received a standing ovation. That, in turn, helped him earn him a gig in Las Vegas as a resident member of the new Cirque du Soleil production, Matt Apple, at the New York, New York Hotel and Casino. And that's just part of the story that confirmed Turner's 2023 Edinburgh Fringe show, Vegas, baby! Turner sat down with me during the Fringe in Edinburgh to talk about his beginnings in the UK, his move to America, and everything in between. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! Make sure I really nail the rap. I'm like, well, no, I'm always trying to nail the rap. Right, you don't necessarily perform thinking Jordan Peterson is going to be in the room. Exactly. I had a guy last night who was at that gig because he came up to me afterwards. He was like, I was at that gig where you had those suggestions, which means that he was there. I didn't know. And he was a he was like, that's crazy. <laughs> and my name is Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, all I need now is Andrew Tate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris Turner, last things first. How would you compare the choice between being a City fan and a United fan? With the choice between being a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? I only understand half of this equation. <laughs> well, you're from Manchester. And you can hear my accent, so you can understand which sport it mm-hmm. is. And it's the one that many people listening will call soccer. Uh, it's not a choice as to whether you're a Manchester fan, uh, a United fan or a City fan. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it is just a fact. You are a City fan or a United fan. Uh, having said that, mine was kind of a choice, but it was that I grew up in Manchester. I grew up... Nearer to Old Trafford than I did to Main Road, which is their stadium. Uh, by there, I mean cities. Now they play at the Etihad. And my best friend growing up was a City fan. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a team because my parents didn't support a team. And that's how you get your team in the UK. Uh, your, yeah. your dad, traditionally, is the one who has a team and he takes you to matches. I didn't have a team, but my mate David loved City. And he said, you should support United because they're red. You like red, I'm blue, I like blue, we're rivals. Then we've got like a little rivalry between us. Mm. And I said, okay, cool. And I lucked out that I started supporting United in 1997 or 1998, which is 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, the the best years for United, Mm -hmm. really. I got to see the Champions League final, the legendary 2-1 in added time. I don't know what the difference is between a Mets and Yankees fan, because United used to be the big team, and now mm-hmm. City are the big team. Has that switched? No, the Yankees have always been the big team, right? And is it the idea that 
if you support United, oh, you're fake. You're not from Manchester. But now loads of people support City who aren't from Manchester. Right. This is such a boring start to a podcast <laughs> for anyone who doesn't care about football. People have just clicked off immediately. Like, oh, well, I liked his accent, but this is this is dull. <laughs> He didn't even turn it into a freestyle rap. What exactly. Is... I refuse. I gave him a suggestion. He said, no. <laughs> so we're speaking uh, at the start of the second half of the Fringe in Edinburgh. Mm. Uh, 20... It's an unofficial divide. Yes. It's not, you know, they don't say this is the second half, but it's around about, you know, the 15th that you have your day off. Everyone recuperates, by which I mean they go out the night before and get mm-hmm. utterly trashed. <laughs> I mean, I was out till 5.30 that night, and when I decided to go home, all my friends shouted at me and then sent me voice notes at 8 a.m. the next morning saying they'd ended up in a house full of Australians <laughs> returning to their 2011 legendary fringe status, um, which I think is a euphemism for taking many substances. <laughs> um, but I went home before all that because I'm a very good boy. But yeah, the start of the second half, there's two more weeks to go. Uh, this is when you see performers really happy because they're adding loads of extra shows and they're selling out, or they wish they could have gone home and they question why they ever came up here. So uh, from the tone and tenor of my voice, you can judge which one of those you think I am. <laughs> I'm having a lovely time. Uh, I'm, I'm, I love being up here. Well, you are a, a rap god. so A rap god. I mean, look, I, that's my show title from last year, and I think not enough people realize that it's a comedy show. <laughs> and people were like... But you're saying you're a rap god. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not. Because that's the name of the show. I'm like, well, yeah, but obviously not. You've seen the poster. It, I'm a lanky white guy. Were, were I, there people who thought it might be taking swipes at Eminem? No, I don't think anyone thought that. I think they'd be like, oh, that's like Eminem. You know, I, I mean, it was between that title or calling the show White Eminem, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> and I think people were like, well, we don't get that even more because he is white. I was like, is everyone... <laughs> Is everyone dumb? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to say I'm not that. <laughs> it's silly. You know, ah, it's such a silly thing. But, I, yes, a rap god. Uh, at least not that. A rap priest, perhaps. Mm. But that's even more dangerous. Rap reverend? Rap reverend. reverend. Rap minister. We could just keep listing liturgical professions. <laughs> Cleric. That's 2 D&D for me. Monk? Also 2 D&D. They got fire monks and all that stuff, don't they? So your first fringe though was 2014. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. I mean my first solo fringe. I've been doing fringe since 2007. Oh. Acting, with, playing music. With uni or um with yeah, with with school, uh, as in British school. So mm-hmm. when I was 17. That's why doing, I said uni. Yeah, doing Instead school, of you doing a school play. <laughs> your college. School play. And then I went up the next year when I was still in high school playing music in a band in a cafe and then I went up the next year with my university improv troupe called the Oxford Imps and started doing stand-up the year after that and started doing like you kind of do mixed bill shows comedians will team up and share an hour between two three four people right so then there's more people flyering and they come to your show and if they don't like you well in 15 minutes you're off the stage and there's someone else and uh, those are always fun especially when you develop a relationship with the performers in your show, which means you're just trying to mess each other up. And so one of those shows, I arrived late for the show and I get on stage and I start doing all my jokes and the audience are not laughing at any of them. 
and uh, about two or three minutes in, I just shout at the audience, like, what's wrong with you? Do you not speak English? Mm -hmm. And then I hear my friend, a fellow comedian, laughing from the back of the room, and I realized that he had performed my set as his set before me, so they'd heard all my jokes. (laughs) And so I had to perform his set. However, he was a very talented physical comedian with really good delivery, and it turns out that his jokes performed by me, who back then was quite deadpan, really really didn't hit you needed that panache the kind of extra punch that his performance gave it which uh, led to a massive argument about how he was a terrible writer but uh, he must have been a city fan yeah <laughs> i don't think he was i think he uh, he hates football uh, um wait so that was not a case of joke theory he was mm, just pranking you. he was pranking me <laughs> yeah it's totally allowed did he tell the audience he was doing that or? uh he i think he did yeah i think he did okay, say that. i'm gonna do <laughs> yeah the next act. I'm going to do Chris's set for. <laughs> don't, then, t- don't let don't, on what I'm doing. Don't. <laughs> Man, so what? Wh- I can't imagine what must it have been like to be exposed to this festival and this atmosphere at such a young age. Mm. It is. It is corrupting. Um, I mean, the reason I fell in love with Edinburgh was because I thought it was so like nothing I'd seen before, and, and I mean, everyone's going to say that the days of their youth when they were up here was the best time for the festival because you're a teenager, so it hits a lot more. You feel it more. But I was 17 acting in two terrible plays, but I didn't care because I'm doing these plays. There's an audience. I enjoy it. There's not much heavy lifting on my part because I found it quite easy. And then you're just unleashed. You're, you, there is no parental guidance. Mm-hmm. Like th- There was allegedly a teacher who was in charge i don't think i ever saw this teacher and you can get served alcohol underage in any of the bars at least back then um i i would just have an amazing time buying liters and liters of very cheap very high alcoholic cider getting absolutely wrecked and just dancing with random people that you met who were from the flyering teams who were up there doing tech for shows. You're not hanging out with other comedians. I mean, I don't even think I was seeing comedy shows that year. I maybe saw a couple that I then like just had my mind blown by because it was the first time I'd seen fringe comedy and some of that could be quite experimental and uh, uh, explicit. Like when you, you know, when you first see like full nude clowning, you're like, sorry, are people allowed to do this? This is a, a public order offense. <laughs> um, and those first two years, especially like the second year, I just came up independently with a friend and we just played music in a cafe. But we stayed with some much older Australians and like you're just there in you're just sleeping all day and then going out and just getting absolutely wrecked, which when you, if that's what you want as a teenager. And then the next year I came up going, oh, I'm 19. I'm doing comedy and this is the fringe. So it changes. So even when I'm here now as a performer, I still remember that for many people, the fringe is not the shows. The fringe is the atmosphere and the parties and the fact that bars are open until 5 a.m. And there's food up until 5 a.m., which as New Yorkers, we and I, I refer to myself as a New Yorker now. Um, How obnoxious. Uh, I know, I know. But if you say that to me, I will attack you because I am a violent man now. I live in Brooklyn. Um, I remember that there are people who it, this is a, a place of fun and revelry. And you just, people come up to you and be like, hey, you're doing a show. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, hey, we're looking to see a show. Are there any good shows on? You're like, are there any good shows on? (laughs) 
Yes, yes, it's the biggest arts festival. <laughs> hey, like, what can we see up here, though? Like, what's that? This is just a conversation I had verbatim with a very sharp-dressed Scottish guy who can't have been more than 19. And uh, I think I sold him on my show. Uh, and by my show, I mean a friend show, because I desperately did not want this man to come. <laughs> I told him that my show was a show that was not my show. He was like, hey, well, come along. We're looking me into me. It's looking for a good night out. I'm like, I don't think you want what I'm selling. Oh, that's the old uh, when a woman slips you a fake number. Exactly. Exactly. a pizza place instead of that. There's a, an Australian Scottish comedian called Ro Campbell, and I, I hope he would not mind me telling this story, but it's one of my favorite Edinburgh Fringe stories. He's handing out flyers on the mile. A guy who looks quite tough comes up to him, uh, and he Roe kind of draws back the flyer because he goes, oh, I don't think I want this guy in my show. He looks like he's a little bit of a, a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. And the guy goes, hey, what's your show? And he's like, oh, it's it's just a comedy show. He's like, I like comedy. He's like, I, I, don't, I don't really think you'd enjoy it. And the guy like grabs the flyer and Roe holds onto the flyer tight and they have like a little tug of war between the flyer. Mm-hmm. And the guy rips it out of Roe's hand, leans in and goes, I'm coming. <laughs> Turned out he was a reviewer. Five stars. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Ro Campbell is up this year. If he is, go see. Very funny. Very funny man. So did that did that eliminate any possibility that you might pursue a different career? Um, I mean, I was going to be a lawyer. So I would say that getting absolutely wasted every night sets you up for the career of a lawyer. <laughs> um, no, what what put an end to that? Because, yeah, when I was 17 and 18, I was going to be a lawyer. That was my aim. And then I went to university and I was studying and I loved it. But when I was 19, coming up to the fringe doing comedy, doing comedy was what put an end to that. Because I thought, oh, no, comedy is a career. Look at this. Look at all these people making a living. I thought, no one makes any money up here. It's impossible. Right. A lot of people lose a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's the, that's the point. Uh, isn't it fun, isn't it? Yeah. Guess who's making money up here? It's not the performers. <laughs> So no, doing doing comedy at university put an end to any dreams or hopes. I don't think you dream of being a lawyer. <laughs> I dream of being a lawyer. But that was my ambition, and discovering comedy stopped that. And I just wanted to be a comedian. And that's what I pursued from that point onwards. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that I do that. And I always, since 2013, which is when I officially started making a bit of money as a comedian, enough to live on with various support and things from like living with friends <laughs> you know having a little bit of government benefits uh that was when i kind of was like oh i'm making a living as a comedian that's all i ever wanted and that's the a thing i always remind like remind myself of that as hard as edinburgh is it is one of those examples of a month where we get to have so much fun um you can have fun you're allowed to have fun it also could be hard to have fun up here but if you remember that you should be having fun otherwise why would you no one's making you come to edinburgh you know, back in the day, maybe it was like, oh, you have to be in Edinburgh. Now I don't think you have to be in Edinburgh. Like, Brian Logan in The Guardian the other day wrote that none of the shows that were nominated for the Best Comedy Award last year, none of them, none of those performers are back at the Fringe this year. <laughs> so, clearly you don't need to be here. Um, so, if you, you know, come here if you want to. It's very different to how it used to be. I think you used to have to be here. Now, no, come and have a fun time and do some shows and make people laugh. Well, that 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 remark right there that you're citing from the guardian that also cuts to one of the key long-standing differences between British Commonwealth comedy and American comedy. The idea that you would c- come back year after year with a brand new show 
compared to stand-up comedians who were doing the same sets for years before they... Mm. I suppose now more and more American acts are doing a new hour every year because people are putting out YouTube specials. People are doing so much material. Like I'm I'm thinking about people like Normand or Morel who are on the road constantly with a new show each year. You're looping around, and maybe you do a 12-month to 18-month cycle, but... People are still doing a new hour. I suppose the thing with Edinburgh shows was the traditional Edinburgh show, which is a narrative, a themed hour, which maybe there's more people doing now. But yeah, that definitely didn't seem to be in the past. And I think if you've watched documentaries like the Hannibal Buress Edinburgh one, Mm. (laughs) where he complains that he's having to do the same show every night for 25 (laughs) nights, and you go, yeah, that is what this festival is. You don't have to, but that's what people expect. And then he stops doing that and has fun. It's like, good good for you. I'm glad because it should be fun. Right. (laughs) When you were starting as a solo act, were you doing straight stand-up or were you already rapping at the time? My first solo show up here was called Pretty Fly, which was about 50 minutes of jokes and stories that were all just the first you know hour of jokes I'd written over um, five years of comedy. And then I finished with a freestyle rap as like a kind of, boom, look at this. At the end, you didn't know I could do that. And that's that's the big ending. When I started stand-up in 2009, 2010, I was just doing one-liners, and it was the fringe that started me doing freestyling in my act, because I'd always rapped since the age of 11 or 12, but I ran this kids' show, which I still run, called AAA Batteries Not Included, and I used to MC that show by chatting with the kids. You'd find out which kids had, like, toys in, like little, you know, their their little snugglies or whatever, Mm -hmm. and often... I'd get these toys up on stage and be like, hey, did you know that like your dinosaur can rap? And they'd be like, no. I'd be like, yeah, he can. Like, what do you want to hear him rap about? Whatever they say. And then I'd make him rap. And a, a friend's partner at the time, who was also a critic, said to that f- friend, hey, I think Chris should do that in his adult act. Um, it's better than his comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing it in my in my kind of evening spots, and people really liked it, and it, it got me more bookings. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is a fun little thing to do. Oh, yeah, it works. And over the years, I've always tried to knit it into my shows because I'm aware that it's something I do very well, and if you've got something you do very well, put it in the show. Mm-hmm. But I try and always fold it into the narrative, um, or last year's show was just a musical comedy rap show. This year's show is not. It's a storytelling show, but the rap is integral to that because it explains a lot of what happened in the story. And then next year's show is a big musical comedy show. So there'll be much more music in that and freestyling, not necessarily just rap, different genres as well. But, you know, improvised lyrics, whether it's rapped or sung, is is very similar. How do the audiences in the UK respond to freestyle rap differently from the American They don't understand what it is. So they don't respond in the in a way that i think americans do because they've grown up either knowing what freestyle rap is or doing it themselves and one of the joys of being in new york is having people come up to you afterwards and go me and my buddies tried to do this all the time Mm -hmm. and like we thought we were pretty good but like this is something else or that was lin-manuel miranda that was lin-manuel miranda he said that (laughs) when he was in the heights he would try and freestyle and he (laughs) couldn't believe that one day he would see uh an oxford educated british man freestyle better than... <laughs> and that's what inspired him to write Hamilton. Yeah, exactly. He was like, he's like okay, if a white man can do freestyle If he's rap, taking then... that part of our culture, I'm going to take history, which we know that white men love writing books about and do it. <laughs> so thanks to Lynn for that. Um, 
I, I love the audiences get it a lot more, which means they respond more because they kind of realize how hard it is because they've tried it or at least they have some knowledge of it. And especially in New York, you know, like home of hip hop, but any anywhere in America has a grasp of it. In the UK, people go, wow, I've never seen that before. In America, people are like, I know what that is, and that was good. Mm-hmm. So there's more of an appreciation of it rather than a uh, it having this kind of surprise novelty value, which I think is important. I mean, a big thing for me is I have people that come to my shows a lot, and they like it, and that's important because I don't want the rap just to be good because it's unexpected, mm-hmm. and I don't want the rap ever to just be good because you don't expect me to be able to do it. What I want is the rap to be good when you know I'm going to do it, and you know I can do it, which keeps me trying to push the level of what I do in the raps and how good I can get. And yeah, just keep on making it good because it, 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 it comes out of a, a passion for it, a lot of time spent doing it. And I do like to show off a bit. And it's, it's very, I mean, all stand-up comedy is showing off, right? True. And for me, it's just... I'm a much more experienced freestyle rapper than I am comedian. And I would say if you rank, you know, all the comedians in the world and all the freestyle rappers in the world, one list is, I think, a lot shorter, freestyle rappers. But I'm much higher on the freestyle rap list than I would be on the comedy list. And so I do try and foreground that. How much did that influence your decision to move to the States? Um, I moved to the States for a bunch of reasons. I mean, I moved when Brexit happened. Uh, I had this just... They left and then you left. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did a whole show about this called What a Time to Be Alive, which started with a joke of, you know, essentially just riffing on the fact that I left the United Kingdom. I was like, oh my God, we just voted for this terrible, terrible idea. This was awful. Why have we done that? Well, let's go to America. And then immediately Trump gets elected. And, you know, yeah. I mean, that's not the jo- the, the joke I cannot <laughs> remember. Uh, that's, that was just a true statement of what happened. It was very funny. It was the opening joke of the show. So whatever it was, I'm sure it was good. Uh, that show did well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that, that kind of unease of living in a country which felt unwelcoming and increasingly narrow-minded and nationalistic. And when that's your country, I think it, I find it very hard to be in England now because I, I, f- I feel... It feels unpleasant. It feels like it's not a place that wants people. And I grew up in Manchester, which is, at least when I was there, Manchester was really proud of having someone from every country in the world legally was registered in Manchester from one of the censuses. London was missing two of the nations. I can't remember what they were. But, um, you know, maybe they didn't have someone from Vatican City. And I I always thought that was really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. How I mean, it's a dumb word, like being oh cosmopolitan, but it like was. It's so cool to walk around a road and just see all these shops and go, these are all different countries' cuisines. Like Manchester's famous for the Curry Mile, which is a road just full of curry houses and other, you know, kind of foods from all over the world. And that was right by my school. I always thought that was cool, and I studied anthropology at university because I I've always been interested in different places and how things work. Um, and so to kind of feel a rejection of that was very upsetting. And then combined with a childhood desire and excitement for America, which I think a lot of British people do have. Um, And plus, like, it's very blunt, but I thought I was quite good at comedy and I wasn't where I wanted to be in terms of, like, you know, I was doing big clubs, but I wasn't on TV or anything. And I thought, hmm, maybe what I do just isn't hitting here as hard as I want it to. And I felt a little bit like, oh, and I'm kind of past the point where it would have popped off because, 
comedy does feel like a young person's game, at least back then. And I thought, well, you know, let's go try America. And then I moved to America and was immediately like, okay, when I get gigs, I feel like the audience appreciate it. Then the difficulty was getting gigs because I was in LA. And a lot of that was not how funny are you. It was, well, how many people are you going to bring to our show? So then that prompted a move to New York where it felt much more, how funny are you? Okay, you're on the show. And uh, the move to America has now, in hindsight, paid off massively just by virtue of things I've done over there with TV, with live shows, with where I play. So that feels very nice. And it, it's also quite nice just to like make a, a big swing, like a big career leap. Mm-hmm. And, and also to keep at it just for a couple of years. Like, But it did feel like you know the first two, three years, you go, was this a terrible idea? <laughs> And then to look back and go, no, we stuck at it because we believed in ourselves and we. Oh, yeah, I speak about myself in the royal we now. I'm talking because every decision in a, a marriage, which I am in, should be we. Um, <laughs> so I refer to my, my wife and, uh, and to me. So in those first couple of years, what, did you find that either being British or by being a freestyle rapper that either or both of those things were obstacles no to oh gosh no not in terms of like all. proving yourself to the new yorkers or no, the, well no this is all in la no i mean being english gives you and that extra thing because there's no one else in the lineup that's english and so you talk about that and they connect with that and like it like whenever i did shows it was fun mm-hmm. the rap was great it's just it was getting the shows in la getting on good shows is hard in L.A., there are a few good shows. You do it, and then they're like, brilliant, we'll have you again in nine months. You go, what am I going to do in the meantime? It's like, well, I'll go to, to open mics. And that's hard to do when you've, mm-hmm. you're, you've come there as a headliner from the U.K., and you go, hey, here are all the clubs I headline. Right. And, and it's not like the clubs even go, the clubs in L.A. don't go, oh, we've never heard of those. The clubs in L.A. just go, we've never heard of you, and we're not even replying to this email. Show up and put time in and work, mm-hmm. up our, work through our system. You go, no. I've done that. <laughs> I'm good now. So I, it took a couple of years before the Comedy and Magic Club specifically, which is you know, okay. just such a great club. They yeah, yeah. saw me do one spot and then booked me every weekend solid for two years because of the improv. They were just like, we'll just have you close every show improvised. And that then led to everything else that happened and sprung out of that. Yeah, and, that, and you get to be on the beach there. So that's... Yes, yeah. I mean, I you know used to have to take... Uber pools there because I couldn't afford to. You didn't get I didn't rides have, I didn't from have Jay a car. Leno. I know I didn't get rides from Jay Leno, which is so inconsiderate considering how many cars he has. <laughs> right. Um, and I would I would often get rides back from comedians, which okay. was nice, which led to me starting to play the Comedy Union, which was a comedy club right near where I lived in LA. It was a black comedy club, and several comedians would drive back and be like, "Oh, we're going to the Comedy Union," and I got there and I performed there because I was there, and. Uh, that was another place where, I mean, I never gigged there that much, but mm-hmm. it was another place where I was like, yeah, see, I'm, I'm good. Like, right, that's th- a good th- test this, of your this is a challenging room to play for any comedian, especially a white comedian coming in saying, and I'm going to do a rap. And you just feel the crowd go, cool, we'll let you, but we'll also <laughs> let you know how we feel about this. Right. <laughs> yeah, you think having one reviewer in your show is... Yeah, yeah, and I would say, you know, in Edinburgh, reviewers, if they don't like a bit or don't think you're very funny, they don't shout at you. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, a black comedy club, if you are, I compare it to, like, gigs in Liverpool. If you're mm-hmm. not funny and you gig in Liverpool and you don't convince them within the first 30 seconds, an audience of Scousers is going to tell you what they think. 
and I've seen acts in black comedy clubs in America go on, seem clearly not ready to be there mm-hmm. and be told by the audience <laughs> that ready. they're not very funny. There's a show, or there was a show that I did in North Hollywood, I think at the Ha Ha Comedy Club, um, run by a comic called Daryl Kamak, who is a, a lovely, lovely guy. And like he hosts the show and he came on. The show was called You Damn Right. It was You Damn Right Comedy Show. And he asked me to perform. He comes on chanting this song, which just goes, You Damn Right. You damn right. And he's like, welcome to you damn right comedy show. We've got some great acts. Uh, uh, you know, so what do you say? You damn right. And the idea is when the, act, when the audience agree with anything the act says, they say, you damn right. Okay. So I walk on and I, I think it's funny for my opening line to go, hi there, because you've got to break the ice. Be like, I'm the one white guy on this show. I'm like, hey, everyone. Um, Chris, I'm from England. It's a pleasure to be here at a you damn right comedy show. I just ask just, you know, to kind of, you know, foster the relationship between us uh if you agree with something i say you shout you're definitely correct and so every time people start shouting you're definitely correct but like in my accent mm-hmm. and then start improvising and being like he's certainly verifiable or that people are just shouting different interpretations of that and i remember doing 20 minutes and i got through about seven minutes of material because it was so much fun have this actual kind of call and response comedy gig which you rarely get in in a kind of you know mainstream like on the road club mm. um and yeah i mean those those shows were fun but yeah the comedy and magic club was the place where i got everything kind of kicked off and recommendations for other clubs from that because they're respected as a club they've been around over 40 years um and that was then the club that got me a connection to the comedy cellar in new york which then once you're playing the comedy cellar like the reason i moved to new york was because i was in at the comedy cellar and like i want to be here every night and then i had a baby so i couldn't be there every night but there (laughs) every night that a baby allowed but being at the comedy cellar was what got you uh the colbert gig and what got you noticed by high profile uh intellectualists yeah <laughs> and, yeah uh, okay well this is, this is giving away things. i well, no, i don't want to i don't want i don't want to do that but okay. i but i'm curious. yeah because my edema show this year is the story of how i ended up becoming uh the first freestyle rapper to perform with cirque du soleil uh, and one of the first comedians to perform with cirque du soleil uh, and that that's uh, from a chain of events that all started in new york with uh yeah a certain right. a certain renowned uh revered slash reviled podcaster uh, witnessing a performance of mine but but when you got colbert from what it sounded like when you when you're talking in the show it wasn't through jessica pilot it was through somebody else it was through jess oh it was it was through jess, through jess. Okay. i um i use artistic license ah, okay for that show but no jess jess had seen me at the cellar a bunch of times mm-hmm. and put me forward which uh obviously great because that's you know if you want to do a late night show colbert's the the biggest one and she was instrumental in pushing for me to be able to freestyle on that because we'd submitted she asked me to submit freestyle material mm-hmm. and a tape of, of jokes and we got the feedback oh no they they'd love you to just do your material like this material's really strong i'm like great um i am like the only person in new york who does the freestyling and i think i think i'm good at it and i think it would go down really well and i think this has always been a uh, a concern with freestyling and TV, people have said, but we just don't know if it will go down that well. Like, what if it doesn't work? And I've always said, if it doesn't work, don't air it. 
Mm. There's no requirement to air this. And Jessica had said to them, look, I've seen him do this eight times. It's never not gone well. I've asked him. He said it's always gone well. And so uh, I think, I believe, according to Jessica, in the end, it was it was Stephen himself who said, no, fine, let him, let him improvise. And hopefully it goes well. Right. And so I, I did improvise and it, it did go well. Well enough to to send you to Las Vegas at one point. Yeah. What were your what were your preconceived notions about performing and living in Las Vegas? I think before you go to Las Vegas, you assume everything is the strip. And the strip is a lot, mm-hmm. but you can live in Las Vegas. Most performers don't live on the strip. They live out in Henderson or they live out in, you know, a bunch of other places. I lived in uh, the Arts District, which is between the Strip and downtown, which is Fremont Street. The Arts District is great. That's where Wise Guys Comedy Club is. It's got loads of really cool cafes, beautiful little Art Deco houses, all kind of, you know, one story. Um, I I really liked where we lived. It was so cool. Um, yeah, you know, there's like sketchy areas um, because it's, it's Vegas. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't expect Vegas to be so livable. And my wife and my daughter who were with me my wife loved it. I assume my daughter did. We had an amazing nanny who looked after my daughter. Where we lived, there were so many great restaurants and cafes. You could just essentially live like you're in Brooklyn. Go out and do some work in the day, then go and do the shows. Um, performing in Vegas, I'd done shows at the Comedy Cellar at the Rio. Okay. So you know a bit more what the crowd is like, which is just, it's not a New York crowd. It's not an L.A. crowd. It's a crowd from everywhere, all over America. You will have a large percentage of that crowd who do not speak English especially for a Cirque du Soleil show. But even then, you have to expect material that would pop in New York to maybe get a bit more of a negative response (laughs) in Vegas because people are coming from everywhere. So I, you know, I don't do that much political material. Politically, socially, they'll have different Yeah, I'm not going... I don't do it. It's not not like I'm tempering myself or Mm -hmm. limiting myself because I don't tend to talk about politics. And if I do, I talk about it from a British perspective which is like, look, I mean, I, this ain't my country. I can't vote for anyone. Um, and also look at my country. I mean, who am I to throw stones based on what we've done? But for the freestyles, it was... Like, in New York, I'm more confident if I get a suggestion that I think is boring or rubbish, just going, ah, come on, guys, that sucks. You know, you can't just shout out strippers. Like, <laughs> let's, let's be more challenging here. There's loads of rap songs about strippers. Right. In Vegas, in a 1,200-seat room... If someone yells strippers, I can't really have a back and forth with them going, let me explain to you why I don't think that's a good rap suggestion. <laughs> They'll just be like, boo, you suck. Do a rap about strippers. And so someone says strippers, and I'm like, brilliant, mate. That's a great suggestion. We're rapping about strippers. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and you just have to acknowledge that, I mean, especially those shows, people are paid so much money for a ticket, and they just want a good time. Right. And my job in Vegas is not necessarily to show them, look how talented a comedian I am. My job is to give them a good time. And I, uh, earlier in my career, I think, <laughs> always thought, no, my job is to show you my comedic style and how brilliant I am. And over time I've gone, no, I'm, I'm an entertainer. My job is to make sure these people have a great time and they leave going, that guy was my favorite. Mm. And I don't do that by pandering. I do that by allowing myself to kind of enjoy off their energy. Do you, or how do you think 
your Vegas experience would be different if instead of join instead of being part of a brand new Cirque show, you were either being slotted into an existing show or you had your own show? I mean, having my own show would require a level of fame that I'm not at. Mm-hmm. I I would love to have my own show in Vegas. It is a it is a career aim. Um, on my own terms, though, in that I would not want to live in Vegas for more than a few months at a time. I would happily, though, in the future, you know, have a one of those kind of you know Katy Perry style residencies where. Uh, I don't mean that I, you know, come on stage with a talking poo jumping out the toilet. I did see that show. It was fantastic. Um, but you go for no a couple spoilers. Yeah, you go for a couple of weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Then you go back home and then you go for a couple of weeks at a time and do it. That would be great. That would be so cool. Vegas is a brilliant place to perform because it's Vegas. Like one of my favorite performers is Hack Alert, Frank Sinatra. My favorite album is Sinatra at the Sands with Count Basie arranged by Quincy Jones. It's so cool. And it's just like, that's, it's the home of performers. The difference uh, between doing the Cirque show was like, you're building the show, you're part of the cast, you're originating the cast. So my my spot in the show was built around me, the stage, the scenery, the music was all made for me. It was in the place in the show built specially for me. Like it Mm -hmm. was me, then it was the wheel of death, and then it was the final dance. Like they go, we need to build to a crescendo at the end. We're Mm -hmm. doing this guy's freestyle rapping. They blow the minds. What's next? Oh, my God. Wheel of death. <laughs> End of the show, which was super cool. If I was slotting into an original show, I mean, I'd, I think the experience of being a Vegas performer would be the same. I mean, if I look at a show that would have an act like me in, like Absinthe or one of those Spiegel World productions, these are just shows where there are 10 acts across the evening, each doing five to seven minutes. Each act is incredible, mind-blowing, and the best at what they do. I feel like if you just threw me on and said... And now it's Chris Turner and I walk on. The audience would go, well, we're excited to see something crazy. Maybe the difference would be at Cirque, there's there's still doubt. Like, who is this guy? Why is he here? We don't know what this show is yet. We've mm. not, we have no preconceptions of this, so this guy could be terrible. Whereas the thing, uh, you know, Absinthe, people come on and they're like, oh, I'm about to do an incredible pole dance routine, even though I look like a tiny man. <laughs> like, well, I trust that you're going to be really good at this. Otherwise, why would you be here? Right. <laughs> like, you know, a guy comes on with his girlfriend. He's like, we're going to roll a blade, swing it around by her hair. You don't go, this could go horribly wrong. You're like, no, this is obviously there's the danger element. And one of the reasons I know Cirque enjoyed my act was it was described as well, I, I described it as and then it got put in all the press. Like watching me freestyle is like watching a tightrope act because you're like, is he going to fall? Is he going to make it? Is he going to get to the other side? And the jeopardy is why you watch it. We know they're going to get to the other side. Maybe, but maybe they fall. And watching someone fall off a tightrope is as scary as watching a white British guy say he's going to rap and not be able to do it, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I've not seen Man on Wire, but uh, imagine that, but with me rapping, it's the same. It would both win Oscars. But as you told me before I hit record... You're still getting invited back to Vegas, so yeah, yeah. No, I'm. You, uh, you're, you must be doing something right. Often that, yeah. But well, Vegas is—it's so cool. I, you know, I—I I love doing shows there. There's an energy. There's a vibe. I mean, you know, this show—if I film it as a special—it's a shame that it can't be filmed in Vegas mm. because it's a story about Vegas. And it would feel weird to be in Vegas, Vegas. telling this story. So I, you have Atlantic to tell it, City. Remove. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm coming for you. Coming for you, Atlantic City. Or. Uh... Mohegan Sun? I don't know. 
I saw a little casino on uh, on the main drag here in Edinburgh. Yeah, Maybe. did you look inside? <laughs> it's somehow even more depressing than Vegas casinos. <laughs> Vegas, like having my baby in it Vegas. It was open later than Tesco Express, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Having my baby in Vegas, I remember walking through a casino and just like stopping to do something in her stroller. And the security guard goes, you can't stop here, sir. And I go, why? They go, this is the gambling floor. There's no underage people here. I'm like, I'm walking through your casino. And they go, yeah, but you can't stop. I'm like, what do you think this seven-month-old baby is going to do? <laughs> she's not... She's she's looking at the flashy lights. She's like, yeah, she's not pressing a button. And she can't hold her head up straight. What? And they're like, you need to move along, sir, She's not please. asking for a whiskey. <laughs> yeah, what, what are you going to... You can't comp her a drink. It's so silly. They could comp her a drink. They could comp her a drink. Give me some of that water <laughs> that they say doesn't have caffeine in, but clearly does. <gasps> mm-hmm. Well, Chris Turner, I uh, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your fringe. I mean, you know, I had so many things I was going to do at one o'clock today. <laughs> no, this is lovely. This is a beautiful uh, recording studio that you've co-opted out of the the common room. Um, these sofas are very comfy. It's actually it's like being back at university, except the vending machine is vastly overpriced for all the things inside. But that's just because I went I was in the past, right? And it used to be seventy pence for yes. a Mars bar. Now it's one pound thirty. Yes. Disgusting. And by the time people listen to this, who knows? Who knows? Fifty <laughs> one pound fifty. <laughs> I reckon when the fringe ends, they take all the prices back down again. Ooh, good point. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. Thank this. you so much, Sean. And you can find me at uh, Chris Turner Comedy on Instagram and YouTube. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.